Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. It is time for Baldry's Beat. We bring in Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Hey, Keith. Good morning, Jody. Good morning. Good to talk with you. Uh, coming up later this morning at 11 o'clock, in fact, we'll be talking to the BCGEU about how the talks have broken off. But I want to pick your brain on this subject mm-hmm. right here and now. What are you hearing about this? We were all so hopeful. Everybody was getting back to the table. And yet here we are now. It sounds uh, like things have really stalled. Well, I wasn't hopeful. <laughs> you weren't um, hopeful? Okay. No. Not at all. I think the gap between the two sides is quite significant. Uh, the GEU, uh, setting the stage for other public sector negotiations, wants basically wage increases to reflect the increase to the cost of living in terms of inflation rates. They were looking for 5% a year uh, when talks first broke off um, with a with a cost of living uh, agreement as well. And when inflation is running 7 8%, the provincial government is just not in any position uh, financially to offer that type of wage redress. So not surprised. My understanding is the employer did increase the offer at the table. It was, it was 1.75 and 2% and 25 cents an hour. Um, I'm told they increased that. Not sure exactly to what point. Also increased the size of the signing bonus, I think in excess of 1500 or $2,000, as well as that 25 cents an hour, which really didn't get a lot of attention in a lot of media coverage of when the talks first broke down. 25 cents an hour increase is, works out to about a little more than $500 a year per employee. And for lower paid employees, that represents a, a further wage increase of more than 1%. So, um, Again, that's not reflected necessarily in how either side characterizes each side's offer. It'll be interesting whether you've got Stephanie Smith on, I assume, from the BCG. I do, yes. It'll be interesting whether she reveals, as they did last time, um, which is unusual, the details of what they're actually looking for at the table. Uh, Usually there's a bit of a news blackout attached to these things. It doesn't seem to be the case with this one. And the GU now is setting in stage uh, potential job action. They say it's going to be strategic. Uh, not a full-scale strike yet, but I'll tell you, Jody, I've not, we've not seen this type of potential labor strife for decades because uh, we're talking 400,000 unionized workers and 182 contracts, and the GU is the one who's supposed to set the template for everyone because what one union gets, everyone gets. So an across-the-board increase of 5% um, per employee for three years is... Um, about $9.5 billion cost to the provincial treasury. So it's a lot of money. There's a lot of money unallocated in the budget, but not enough necessarily to reflect a, a wage increase uh, to match, keep pace with inflation, because a lot of pu- private sector uh, employees are not seeing that in their own workplace. And that's the balancing act this government's got. It can't give so much to the public side without seeing the private side also giving those types of wage increases. And we're not seeing that on the private sector right now. Okay, so Keith, let's go through some of the impacts that a widespread work stoppage, strike, interruption, whatever we want to call it, might impact. I mean, some are essential services, but others are not. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you see this? Like you said, it's been decades since we've seen anything like what might be inevitable here. Um, might be. I, I strain the might part. But if in the worst case scenario, what do we see happen here? Well, you started looking at public services. Um, you know, years ago, the number one leverage uh, the BCG had was government liquor stores because there were no private stores. 
So when they started closing government liquor stores, he, <laughs> the public would start getting concerned. But now with the proliferation of uh, private liquor stores, that leverage is gone from the GU. But right. it would be necessarily if you want to access government offices, you want to renew your driver's license, you want to um, uh, check with the health ministry with some particular situation with your with your health account. Uh, those might be uh, challenging and daunting, either behind a picket line or reduced to essential service levels, which means the weights for services would increase significantly. So basically anything you want from government would take longer, significantly longer, or be totally inaccessible because it would be behind a picket line. Now, the nurses' union is also part of this, but they would, they would not be allowed to close hospitals, for example, because you have right. to maintain essential services. One implication, though, fast forward to the fall, this raises the specter that the schools don't open in the fall. And I think people have to get their heads around that. There's, I'd say right now, if you had to bet, I would bet on the schools being closed in the fall because I just don't see uh, the evidence yet that the gap is closing between the GEU and therefore the BCTF and the government. Now, the TF hasn't really started contract talks in earnest. Eventually, it will. But if the gap is significant between the GEU, which usually is a union that comes to a settlement fairly quickly, and the fact that GEU is not there is problematic. That sends a signal that perhaps um, it's going to be that much more challenging to settle a contract with other unions. So it's, uh, we can see a lot of picket lines and a lot of withdrawal of services over the summer and into the fall. No, oh, just what parents need is more concern about school in the fall. That 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 was the sound of knots in stomachs. Well, mir- miracles there. miracles happen, uh, but we've yeah. seen school strikes before. That's one sector that has more labor disruptions than any other sector. And True. again, when the when the gap is so big between the GEU, which usually settles quickly, and the government, that tells me that that solving the TF contract is going to be a, a quite a challenge. So uh, we'll we'll have to put a call in to Clint Johnston, the new uh, BCTF president, and see uh, what is happening there, or what the plan is, like you said, back to the table here, as we're just a couple of days out of the end of the last uh, school year. Let's talk about politics and uh, how things are starting to shape up in terms of who might be the next leader to step in, where Premier John Horgan has announced that he is stepping away from uh, his role as Premier of British Columbia, a new leader to be found this fall. What are you hearing on this? Well, I'm hearing that David Eby certainly seems to be have the inside track. I'm hearing that he's picking up some quietly some endorsements uh, from his caucus um, uh, colleagues, not all of them, but a significant number of them, I think, are going to endorse his leadership. It's still early days in this. People still, are, I think a lot of potential candidates are waiting to see what the rules are. Also waiting to see what the fee is to run. And my understanding, the fundraising rules have changed to how you fund that um, that registration or that candidacy fee, which can be you know twenty five thousand dollars or more. And um, th- that's going to be a challenge to those who may not be viewed as front runners and just want to throw their name in for name recognition. So it'll be interesting how crowded a field it comes. But the early rumors are uh, that David Eby is the one to beat. Any other news as well before we head to calls here, uh, take a break and head to the phone boards. Uh, any other news? I understand that we're going to get an update on the officers involved in the, the Saanich uh, horrifying situation, the, the bank robbery. Uh, the names of those officers we're going to be told later on uh, this afternoon. Yep. Any yep. other news around uh, Saanich? Anything coming to light there? Well, there's certainly going to be some questions uh, asked of uh, Sanish Police Chief. Um, you know, I've talked to a number of police officers who, you know, chat amongst themselves. This is a big deal here. 
I mean, a lot of people think, oh, well, it's last week, it's faded from memory. It's still a major incident here. Was it domestic terrorism? Uh, you see the red flags on social media with these two posting videos of firing high-powered weapons, posting anti-government uh, websites, talking about government tyranny, uh, anti-vaccine, anti-Trudeau, just all the sort of anti-stuff that you see uh, associated with people who are starting to drift into the fringes. And so there's yeah. some questions on whether or not should this, these two have been re- sort of a red flag before. Um, questions about how, why was the ERT there? Why were they so close? And what would have happened if the ERT, the emergency response team, was not there? I'm told by police officers that if the ERT squad was not there, there would be many dead police officers here. Wow. And the final question is, is it now apparent that the, these two had no intention of leaving that bank, that this was in fact a trap to bait police officers to, to get in a gun battle with them, knowing what the final outcome would be, but they'd be taking a lot of people with them. So there's some pretty tough questions the Spanish police will be asked today, and we'll see if uh, they can shed some light on some of the questions that remain outstanding. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. It is Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, is with, uh, with us, of course. And we're talking about all things BC and, in particular, the BCGEU talks breaking off and what that might mean in the days and weeks to come. Also, the leadership race and how David Eby seems to be picking up a lot of MLA endorsements, as well as we're talking about what happened in Saanich. And while the headlines keep rolling and the top story changes almost by the hour, keeping focus on what happened in Saanich certainly is is very key to those who live in that community. And Keith, we're going to head to the phone lines here, 604-280-9898, star 9898, a free call on your cell if you'd like to chime in with a question or comment for Keith. Ron in New Westminster, you're up first. Welcome, Ron. Yeah, hello, Jody. Thanks. Um, you know, every time we have something like this happen, we have everybody uh, get on the gun control bandwagon. But I think what we really need to focus on, like when like we don't find out until after the fact who these people were, but it was obvious when you look at their Facebook accounts and what they were doing, how they were posing with weapons, out shooting in the woods. Um, if those videos were real, if those firearms were real, it looks like they're illegal firearms to begin with. They could be arrested uh, just for that. I mean, we need to have our police agencies monitoring these type of things. And the minute they see something uh, that these people can be brought in for, bring them in, do a psych evaluation on them, find out who these people are. Let's start doing that before we're cleaning up the mess. Yeah, so that's gonna that's a very good very good call, very good point. Uh, that's one of the questions that's going to be posed to police today. Was there any way to prevent this in terms of... Um, uh, the intel that's out there and the evidence on social media that you had two young people and by all accounts according to interviews with their former classmates and friends that seemed to have drifted away from society in a way sort of um, became cut off from a lot of people at the same time they seemed to be obsessed with guns in the military and anti-government tyranny I mean, those are all red flags, but why weren't they seen, or was there a better way to actually find uh, this type of activity before it manifests itself in what we saw last Tuesday? Hopefully that uh, answers your question. Stephen Burnaby, you are up next. Steve, welcome. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I was just calling because the HEU is in the same boat, too, the hospital employees. Mm-hmm. And they're... Well, I I work at a residential low-income housing, plus a uh, there's the uh, shelters and all that. And basically, people are just getting paid twenty, twenty-two dollars an hour. And it's been a while, 
Mm-hmm. And it's also that, um, what else was I going to say here? Gunshot here. Oh, also, yeah. I mean, the people that are working there, they pay taxes, too. It's just not they're against taxpayers. Uh, They're taxpayers as well. That's all I have to say. Thanks, Steve. Well, the HEU is part of this bargaining uh, situation as well, as is the BC Nurses Union, the Health Sciences Association, the BC Teachers Federation, the BC Government Employees Union, uh, QP, um, the college faculty. There's, there's, like I say, 393,000 people we're talking about here who belong to public sector unions, all of whose contracts have now expired and are in the midst of either in the midst of negotiations or about to begin negotiations at a time when the union that usually settles fairly quickly and sets the template for everyone is broken down talks twice now. Uh, that's not a good sign for other unions as well. It'll be interesting, though, and I'm told the employer is going to start uh, getting their message out, what they're really offering on the table. And if, if it turns out that the employer is offering, you know, 9%, say, over three years, a 9% increase and a $2,000 signing bonus, the union negotiators may not like that, but that may actually resonate with the membership of a union who are, looks like everyone right now, struggling with an inflation. If you dangle a $2,000 check in front of them, or 1500 or whatever it is, plus an 8 to 9% increase over three years, that might resonate with the membership rather than union negotiators. And I think that's the next step to look for, for the employer to put more information out about what's actually on the table and not let the right. GU necessarily control the messaging. All right, let's try and squeeze in one more call. Brent in Colonia, you got a quick 30 seconds here for Keith. Hi, thanks very much. I own a couple of restaurants in Kelowna, and if the, the government liquor stores go on strike, how do we get our supplies since we're not allowed to buy from uh, uh, private stores? That's a very good question. Uh, the liquor distribution branch presumably would be behind a picket line. I think GU employees are there, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so that's that would be one of the challenges. Um and again, it's we have not had job action like this, the prospect of job action, in decades. And it's going to be a struggle to, to negotiate that contract at the table. But I still think the employer putting out details of a significant signing bonus, that might connect with the membership more than the union negotiators. We'll see where that goes. So, Keith, if somebody is listening right now and they are one of the 393,000 people impacted by this negotiation, where would they be able to go to perhaps have a better idea of what's on the table? Are they looking to press releases coming from the BCGEU to the... Right now, the only substantive negotiations that I can detect is the GEU one. I think others are waiting to see what the GEU does. There does seem to be a clue in that all these unions have got together and had joint advertisements, which we've never seen before. So there seems to be a strategy here of binding together and letting the GEU go first. But we'll see if other unions are, are looking for the same thing. Is everyone looking for 5% a year? Uh, you know, right across the board, if that's the case, or more than 5%, it's going to be very hard, I think, to settle that at the negotiating table. I think it would take some, some work stoppages and a signing bonus to get everyone out of this thing. All right, Keith, thank you. As always, we'll chat with you tomorrow. Baldry's Beat, of course, thank you for everybody for your calls as well.